You are listening to EE Times On Air, and this is EE Times Current. I'm Eric Singer. Welcome back to Brains and Machines, a deep dive into neuromorphic engineering and biologically inspired technology. In this episode, EE Times regular Dr. Sonny Baines talks to Professor Elisabeth Kika, a neuromorphic engineer from the University of Groningen. In this episode, you'll find out about building neural chips with memristors, adding electronic brains to neural robots, and some of the current difficulties with learning algorithms for spiking systems. But first, today's EE Times current highlights. MIT's Yossi Sheffi offers insights into JD.com and Moderna. EE Times sat down with Yossi Sheffi to discuss part of his new book, The Magic Conveyor Belt, Supply Chains, AI, and the Future of Work, where he discusses a host of topics including JD.com in China and Moderna in Massachusetts, as well as the main challenges the supply chain industry must address in the next couple of years. Exclusive. IESA Chair Sanjay Gupta on the Indian chip industry. In an exclusive video interview, EE Times correspondent Nitin Dahad had a chat with IESA Chair Sanjay Gupta on their current state of the Indian chip industry, exploring how incentives have made India attractive to global investors to establish something in the country to serve both local and global demand. A vulnerable U.S. electronics supply chain. In this new series, EE Times delves into the critical endeavors undertaken by the U.S. to fortify its electronics manufacturing capabilities domestically, with an aim to lessen dependence on foreign production hubs like China. Now, back to Brains and Machines. Your hosts are Dr. Sonny Baines of University College London and Dr. Giulia D'Angelo of the Italian Institute of Technology. Welcome to Brains and Machines. I am Giulia D'Angelo. And I'm Sunny Baines. In today's episode, Sunny will explore the world of neuromorphic chips with Elisabetta Kika, Chair of the Bioinspired Circuits and Systems Group at the University of Groningen in the Netherlands. After the interview, we will be talking to Professor Ralph Etienne Cummings from Johns Hopkins University about the issues she raises. Thanks, Julia. Elisabetta creates advanced chip designs to model the brain and test how various learning and perception mechanisms work. She spent more than 10 years at the Institute of Neuroinformatics in Zurich, Switzerland, before moving to Germany and finally the Netherlands. As you'll hear, in Groningen, she's taking the opportunity to push the boundaries of what's possible in electronics by working with materials scientists. There are links to her work and some of the specific papers we'll be discussing on our website. You can check them out at brainsandmachines.net. I met Elisabetta in her office in Groningen. Elisabetta Kika, welcome to Brains and Machines. Can we start by talking about your first degree? What did you study? Thank you, Sunny, for having me here. I studied physics. And then during my studies in physics, I became interested in electronic circuits. And so I chose a track that was called electronics and cybernetics. And how did you get involved with modeling neural systems? Yeah, that was during my studies. Within this track that I just mentioned, there was a course called general cybernetics. And the very nice female professor that was teaching it she told us about neural networks within this course, and she mentioned that there was uh, another professor at our university, his name was Daniela Mitt, 
that had a very nice course on the theoretical side. And that's then my first exposure to neural networks. And after that, later on, I decided to work on a master thesis that was putting the two things together. So I was designing electronic circuits to do the kind of modeling that this professor was studying in his research. Now, you design neuromorphic chips using sub-threshold analog electronics. Can you explain the benefits of this type of computation? I try to do that in a few words, because I think we could speak about it for a very long time. But to me, what that really means is that I have a physical emulation of a system instead of a software simulation or a simulation. So I really use the physics and I have a physical system that can be embedded in a physical environment. And all of this together is really what gives my approach different motivations and different goals. You could do physical implementation with other technologies, but the CMOS is widely available. So for that is very convenient. So my understanding is that this sub-threshold analog, its advantage as well as being physical, is that it's extremely low power, but that it also has some problems with variability and noise. So can you talk about those problems, you know, some people will call them problems, and what you think about them and how they can be overcome? My approach is to look at the brain for that because the variability and noise, they can be very different in the brain compared to the CMOS systems, but algorithms that are robust to variability and noise uh, are the only ones that are good candidates for explaining how the brain works. And, and, and the main goal in my research is to understand how the brain works. So if you come up with an algorithm that, that is gonna be non-functional because of noise is probably not a good candidate for explaining brain computation. So in that sense, we can make good use of variability and noise. At the same time, it is not really true that the kind of variability and noise that you have in subthreshold CMOS is so big that can easily kill your computation. So there is also a bit of exaggeration sometimes in this respect, also if you compare with other kind of technology. And part of it, it's about just doing good design because part of it can be avoided by doing good design. But otherwise, it's really about the fact that also in the brain, redundancy is used a lot and population coding. So you will never think that you want to solve a problem with a single computational unit that is perfect, but you want instead multiple computational units to work together to make a robust computation. That's what the brain does. So in a recent paper, you described the building blocks of neural systems that we have now. Can you talk a bit about these? So this paper was the collection of like 10 years of work, not only by myself, but by colleagues that were together with me at INI at that time. And we put together like a summary of the circuits that over the years we developed and we consistently used. And there are building blocks for neurons, 
synapses and so on. So the neurons in neuromorphic engineering, they, they have a long history. They started from the axonilog neuron that Carver Mead proposed. Then there was on the opposite end, a very complex neuron designed by Misha Mawald and Rodney Douglas. And there is a whole spectrum in between from as simple as possible to very complex. And there has been a lot of efforts in trying to come up with complex circuits that despite their limited size, they can reproduce a lot of dynamics that are observed in biology. And so the neuron circuit that, for example, is in that paper is like the one that at that time we believe it was the best compromise in terms of CMOS size, but with providing a lot of features that are present in biology. Then, of course, we have a synapse circuit and we touch on learning as well. And yeah, those are the really fundamental blocks that, that you need to build spiking neural network in, in hardware. And are there blocks that you think are missing or that need further improvement that are just not good enough for the kinds of things you'd like to be doing? Still a very open and challenging topic is learning. There are very few groups in the world that are doing on-chip learning using the kind of circuits that we do. So the subthreshold CMOS that you mentioned at the beginning. That means that there are attempts. There is no perfect solution yet. It's an effort of a few people. And it's an effort of few people probably because it's very, very difficult. But this is one of the topics that we're touching with our research. And I have to say, because of AI, is getting even more difficult to push this kind of research because it, it doesn't go in the direction of AI. It doesn't necessarily solve practical problems, but it does look at the learning that it's done by the brain, the way it's done of, by the brain. So it will be able to solve practical problems in a longer time range. That's why sometimes it's difficult even to get funding for this kind of learning <laughs> research. So you were talking about these building blocks. Do you think there are any missing or where you'd like to see a lot of improvement? Uh, yeah, learning is the answer for me because there has been research on learning on chip with this kind of CMOS circuit, but it is research that has been carried out over the years by a few groups in the world. So progress is kind of slow because of that. And there is no final solution yet. It's still an open question, a challenging one. And it is a very interesting question, again, with respect to understanding the brain, because there is no ultimate model of learning in the brain. It is somewhat difficult to do this kind of research because by now it is always compared with AI and the learning that it's taking place into AI algorithm, it's very different from what I'm talking about. And so they're complementary, they're both useful, but they address different problems. I know that you're also collaborating with others to bring emerging technologies like memristors onto your chips. How do you see these as being used? 
So first of all, I moved to this university basically because of that, because there is a strong research on material science and the idea is to put together people that do modeling with people like me, with the people that work on materials to come up with totally innovative solutions to building intelligent systems. And it goes a bit in the direction of learning, but it goes also in the direction of sensing. And the idea for me is that those novel devices, they, they can be used to start with in conjunction with CMOS, but in the long term, ideally, we would like to really dramatically make new systems, not even using the, the available technology nowadays. But as a start, it's, it's very important to put the two things together. And so the first steps that you can do is to make what is difficult or impossible in CMOS possible or easy with those devices. So, for example, implementing biologically plausible time constant with volatile devices, which are normally very expensive in, in the CMOS, which wants to be very fast. So you're trying to slow down so that it matches what the biology is doing. Have I got that right? Exactly. If you want to embed an agent into a real environment, the dynamic of the signals that the agent is perceiving are the same that we humans perceive and, and the brain adapted to it. So you are correct that it's slow in terms of time constants. At, at the same time, we are able to react quite quickly to things. So latency can be very short, even though the, the, the time constants of the computation are long. So this is also an interesting aspect that we can look at by embedding system in real environments. In terms of how these new technologies are going to help, can you talk about specifically what role memristors would play? A memristor is a resistor with a memory and you can change the state. So you can change its resistance by applying a voltage or a current. So imagine you change the state of the memristor, and then there are two different behaviors. One is after you change it, if you do nothing, the, the memristor is gonna keep its state forever. And that would be non-volatile and forever never exists in physical system, but long enough that you can assume it's forever. So if you think about applications and you think about things at the edge that have to survive on little power for a long time and you want them to fall asleep whenever they're not needed, that it's an important feature that would let them wake up not having lost their memory. You want to not forget. So in that case, the non-volatility, the fact that the Marisol keeps its state is very useful. Now, I know you and I have talked before about the fact that the memristors, which we think of as a memory technology, could actually be used slowing everything down in a sort of oscillating circuit. Have I got that right? And would you like to say anything else about that? If it's instead volatile, it means you change it. And after you change it, it wants to go back to its initial state. And it will take some time but it tends to go back and it's not going to stay where you put it. So because of that, you can use it for implementing time constants when it's volatile. And that's a good feature. 
But at the same time, the non-volatility is also a good feature because you might have a learning algorithm and the outcome of the learning is the state of the memory store. Another issue in neuromorphic engineering is connectivity. Now, at the moment, we have a protocol known as AER, Address Event Representation, which essentially time multiplexes a kind of very straightforward network of connections between all of the different neurons on a chip. And so it looks really like the internet or any other computer network that you would be used to seeing. Now, I know you're also working with people who are looking at how you might do uh, connectivity that is, again, more physical, where the interconnects grow and change with a kind of plasticity that we would see in biology. Can you explain why that might be important? I know it's not your particular field, how that works, but why that might be useful in neural modeling and in neuromorphic technology? Yeah, so first of all, you're absolutely right that we trade time for making connections in the address event representation. And this is something we need to do to compensate the fact that our system are on a plane in comparison with the brain, which is 3D. And so the connectivity in a 3D system is much easier to be implemented and it has uh, much more space for itself. While in CMOS, we, we have this limitation and we have bottlenecks wherever you have an input and an output and you have number of wires and you have to deal with those number of wires. So first of all, there is this physical limitation going from 2D to 3D. But then, as you mentioned, given that people started looking into innovation in terms of materials, you can, as I mentioned already before, think in a much longer term and forget about the technology you have now and try to be much more explorative and say, okay, I can build a material that does everything. And in that context, there is research that is looking at things in that direction. I think you're going to have another podcast with Beatrice Noeda, and she can tell you about these kind of things. In that case, it's about ferroelectric domains. But there is also work by Kwabena Bohain that is really looking at how we can go to 3D and what are important features so that, such that we can do that right. So there are things going on. As you said, it's, it's not my particular field, but I think it's important because wherever we have fundamental difference with how things are done in biology, we are going to probably lack some understanding because of doing things differently, but also we are going to lack some opportunities in terms of applications. I want to ask you a question about hiring people in the sense that one of the trends I've noticed over the last few decades, and I was connected myself with an electrical engineering department in the uh, early 2000s, is that there are fewer and fewer really expert analog engineers. And I wonder if you've noticed the same thing and whether you thought that would impact the development of the technology. I have a few in my lab, so they still exist. And um, there are still a lot of study programs that 
train people in analog design, but the analog design is a different one from the neuromorphic one, but they do have the skills to get into the neuromorphic field. In fact, I think we have another problem that they feel when you hire them and they start working in the field, they feel that they are becoming less specialist because they're going to do a design that is kind of dirty compared to what they learn and compared to the state of the art outside neuromorphic. So they are in fact concerned that by moving into the neuromorphic field, they lose some skills and they are unable to keep themselves up to date with the state of the art in analog design. So I think we can still find them and there are plenty of very good schools where you can look for them. It's not tricky to make them interested in our field and to make them stay. Ultimately, I know that your professional goal is to model real brains rather than to build artificial brains. Can you give me an example of how you do this and the kinds of experiments that you run? We are focusing on two main research topics if I can summarize them. So one is learning. And there we look at what is known about biology and we try to understand it. And we try to come up with models that are compatible with the physical implementation. Can you give an example of that? The one question I've been trying to address recently is the fact that in modeling, even with spiking neurons, there is this thing about doing learning based on mean firing rate or doing learning based on timing. And there are very few examples of learning algorithms that put the two things together. And even when you find one of them, the demonstration of the capabilities of this learning rule are done in a separate way for the mean firing rate and the temporal coding. I find very difficult to understand why. And I think if those two things are in place in the biological system, I believe they, they have an interplay. They operate together. So just to clarify, so mean fire rate is what some people would call rate coding. Yes. Where essentially the timing between spikes represents a kind of gray level, right? Yes. So that it's a way of representing some kind of signal through spikes instead of through voltage or through ones and zeros as bits. Mm -hmm. right? Yes, but in that case, the exact timing of a single spike doesn't matter anymore. Right. And with the temporal coding that you were talking about, if a spike is coming in from some place and it arrives at the wrong moment in terms of the depolarization of the synapse, then it won't have any effect at all. But if it comes in at the right moment when the synapse is all nicely polarized, then it can have quite a big effect, especially if several spikes are arriving at the same time and they can all create a spike together. Is that roughly what you're talking about when you're talking about this temporal coding? Yes, and how the strength of the synapses is then affected by the fact that these events happen at a specific time. So how the synapse changes itself in response to this kind of temporal activation of the pre- and postsynaptic neuron. You said there was a second thrust of your work, so one was learning, and what was the other one? The other one is sensing and sensory motor loops. 
So that's one topic in which biology can become very specialized. So also for survival in many animal species, you see that part of the brain is really specialized to, to solve a particular sensing task. And sometimes this is then connected to a motor action. And so there are beautiful examples that we can look at and try to understand just about that particular computation. So can you give us one of those examples of, uh, a, of a, a creature that you've looked at and the brain area that you've tried to model? We have looked at, for example, uh, obstacle avoidance in insects and animal models for that are the fruit fly, the bumblebee and the honeybee that are very well studied in their visual system to understand how they make use of motion flow, so information about the movement of objects in their environment while they're having some ego motion to estimate the distance of objects and therefore being able to avoid colliding into them. And I know that you're building these models into robots so that you can see whether the hypothesis that you have about how exactly these brain models work, whether it it can work in practice in a real robot and whether the behavior you get matches the behavior of the the real creature. Uh, That must be a really interesting area of work to do. Yes, it's really, really exciting. And it's also nice to see while we do it, the interplay of our engineering skills, like we're building something that should work and, and, and solve a problem, and uh, the input that we get from biology. So how you can refine your model in different steps. I I can give you maybe a a simple example, but that is one or two in in that particular project that is kind of representative. For example, we we first set up the robot to, to drive in a straight line between turns, which is what the insect do as well. But the first attempt, you do things as simple as possible. So the driving into straight line was done at a fixed velocity. And then, of course, after a while, we realized that that wasn't optimal at all. And it's very well known that the insect, like even as human when we're driving a car, would adapt their velocity to the level of how many obstacles there are in the environment. So if there are a lot of things, you slow down because you realize, okay, I I need more time to be able to avoid things. And the next step was like, okay, let's add adaptation in the velocity, but how do we get that? And again, we go back to biology and see, okay, there are neurons in biology that are really there to encode the global motion field, which gives an impression of how much there is in the environment that you have to avoid. So by adding this little adaptation into the system, we could immediately then see an improvement in performances. Finally, I wondered whether you have thought about how and where neuromorphic engineering might eventually make it into real products or applications. Yeah, there are several opportunities. Going back to sensory and motor action, wherever you have a loop in which you have to go from the sensing to an action and latency is an important parameter. There it's where 
Neuromorphic engineering can give you very fast reactions to events from the sensory domain, especially if you have other constraints. So whenever you have very hard constraints on power, payload, and these kind of things, so where you need something small that runs of little on little power, you could provide solutions that are not affordable otherwise by the conventional technology. The learning research that I do is, as I said, in in the short time frame is more fundamental research, but I do see that in the long term can have an impact on artificial systems as well, because there is a lot of learning that we do very differently from machine learning. And it has some features that are currently not present in artificial systems that can be in the long term very useful. So this is also one potential opportunity. It's more on the long term, while the sensing one, I see it happening in a shorter time frame. Elizabeth Akika, thanks so much for coming on to Brains and Machines. Thank you. Thanks a lot. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Sunny. I found Elisaveta to be very clear and clean in any explanation. So again, just to remind everyone, for more information about Elisaveta's work, you'll find it on our website, which is brainsandmachines.net. So now we are very happy to have here again with us, Ralph Etienne Cummins. Hi, Ralph. What did you think about Elisabetta's episode? Thank you so much for having me, Julia and Sunny, and I'm looking forward to chat about uh, Elisabetta's podcast. I think, as you said, she did an extremely clear job of explaining the kinds of things that she's doing and what are the important aspects of what she's doing. Um, and I echo pretty much everything that, uh, that she talked about, particularly on the learning side. I think that is something that is very much missing in the literature and implementation of systems. She, as she indicated, some of the earliest work on on-chip learning was done by her and Gert Kauenbergs and a number of other folks, but her work is definitely seminal in this area. And I think that there are a lot of places that we can expand upon there and to make better and better neuromorphic systems. So her work is focused on the CMOS, on the hardware side, which is basically out of my expertise. Let's say I work from, more from the bio-inspired software side. So I'd like to know from your point of view, what are the challenges in terms of the new CMOS and MEM resource and then what this connect with what Elisabetta said? Sure. So she hits the nail on the head when she says that we are the place where it's not about the circuits anymore, right? So CMOS is the substrate upon which we build different types of computational framework, right? The important next step in neuromorphic de- development is actually materials. And the fact that she moved to her new university to be closer to folks who develop material is genius in a way because that's, that's exactly what you need. You need to be close to folks who can develop material that meets the needs of the neuromorphic area. Memristors are essentially materials that change their uh, conductive properties based on the information that passes through them. Information here is in the form of current. The more current passes, it can become more resistive or less resistive according to the transfer function that is uh, desirable. These are now the next generation of ways to make memories and to make connections 
in the neuromorphic system. And that's why this is really cool and important for our field. I also think that there are other materials that maybe in her domain she's not considering, which are also important. And I think those are actually living tissue. So if there's a way that you can combine living tissue with with artificial systems like uh, silicon or membranes, that is also a major contribution. And that's where organoids, mini brains in a dish, how you can combine them together and take advantage of the fact that connections and biological neurotransmitters and other types of neurochemicals are already in existence in these systems, and they can be used to, to manipulate the interconnections between the neurons, those would also be a very big step for our field. And that's a place where I find potentially some really big uh, contributions in the future. Two things I want to jump in on that. One is we're going to have later in the season an interview with Beatrice Nojeda, who is the head of Cognigron, which are the people who do all of that interesting materials research at Groningen University. So that would be one to listen to if you're interested in this subject. But on another topic, the biological topic, I have to say, and I think you and I may have talked about this before, Ralph, I have a few ethical concerns about growing brains in a dish, right? It's one thing to grow meat in a dish because having meat that's not connected to a brain, that seems like there's nobody getting hurt there. But if you've got a brain in a dish, you're all of a sudden wondering about whether any of these signals that are being passed through or pain signals. I don't know. Maybe I've seen too many rolled dull tales of the unexpected, but just something I thought I should raise. Yeah, and, and I think that is something that we cannot ignore, right? I mean, most of these developments now, there's a couple of papers that, are, that appeared in um, Frontiers on um, artificial intelligence that they essentially start the march towards understanding that interaction between wetware and hardware, right? And bioethics and, and folks who think about this for as a living are part of that group. There was a big Baltimore meeting that happened last year where people from all over the world came in and, and, and tried to address that, that problem. But you're absolutely right. We cannot ignore these things and we gotta have the bioethicists in the loop of this discussion. That aside, I do think that there are some fundamental layers of cells that you can grow in the dish, which are the different cortical layers, and what the influence of connecting them to hardware is forming connections that you would like, influencing how they interact with each other and how learning takes place, both physically and, and computationally. Do you want to chime in, Julia? One thing that I can say is that actually this would be our big next challenge, right? Because we can't hardly do learning in 2D, right? She was referring to 2D and 3D. We can hardly get something done in 2D. So I imagine the complexity of 3D networks. I remember we, we were saying this even in the, the first episode. We have a long journey ahead of us, I think. Yeah, and I agree with you completely. I think 3D integration in silicon is one thing upon itself. And she mentions the work of Robena Bohan and, of course, Andreas Andreu, who actually started thinking about this a long time ago, the 3D integration stuff. Work has been slowly making its way forward. Now, there are different people who look at it for different reasons. One is just signal distribution, right? And I think that's a little bit more the you know, network on a chip kind of scenario. 
on how to pass the signal that's required for learning. And then the other part is actually how do you change the flow of signal based on what the inputs and, and outputs are. And I think that uh, if I remember correctly from Elizabeth's presentation, that was one thing that she was also interested in. And that is also something that is going to be really key for future development. Yeah, you were talking about the adaptation, which is basically the problem, which is very correlated to the sensory motor contingency theories that I'm exploring right now. And also a problem that we have in an anamorphic community, the fact that we don't take embodiment into account that much and we don't close the loop, we, we do not have benchmarks. So again, there's lots of work to do in this direction. Yeah, that came up in Capocaccia this year, the issue of benchmarks and particularly in closed loop robotic systems. We know that there's a big effort to make neuromorphic benchmarks, but the ones that have been developed so far actually don't do the kinds of things necessarily that we really want neuromorphic systems to be able to do. That hopefully will come, but it's going to be difficult to get there. Ralph? Yeah, so... There are folks who are really thinking about this closely. There's a group at CMU and then there's a group at Penn who are starting to look at behaviors of humans in performing tasks such as levers, tasks, and reaching and manipulation. And through basically the sensing, perception, and action loops, and those become just like we see in the saliency space, right? The behavior of the eye movements as the, the gold standard by which we measure the performance of the system, right? So I do think that folks are starting to think about this and starting to think about how do we take advantage of observations of human behavior and then use that as a demarcation of how well our artificial systems are doing, including robotics and others. Uh, so the two people that I recommend that we can look into is this guy named Timothy Versteinen at CMU and Conrad Kodig at the University of Pennsylvania. And they are starting to think about how do you confine the problem in such a way that you can then build artificial system that can do these kinds of, of actions and then be able to basically say what is the comparison between natural intelligence and artificial intelligence through learning and uh, prospective learning, th uh, learning about the future, not learning based on the past. And, um, and that's the kind of things that I think is going to be really key going forward. So the, actually, it wraps it up nicely in terms of what Elizabeth talked about, right? A lot of learning is based on past data, right? But I think learning for the future is using past data as just prologue, but then trying to generalize what the future should be. That's the hard part that has not been done in hardware. Done a lot in software, of course, chat GPT and all that. But how can we implement hardware system that can also do prospective learning? And that's going to be interesting as well. Just to bring it back to Elisabetta again, Elisabetta Kika, I wanted to say that one of the things that I discovered being based here in Edinburgh is that Elisabetta and Barbara Webb are working together on projects now. They're not done yet. I think it's a relatively recent project that they've been working on, but it'll be really interesting to see how that work emerges. So Barbara Webb is famous for creating insect models where she sometimes uses neuromorphic engineering 
to implement neural models. I came across her for the first time back in the 90s when she was doing her PhD, because we're all getting old now. She was doing a neural model of cricket phonotaxis, so how the cricket can hear, and then how it would jump, how it would behave based on what it was hearing. It was all about the cricket finding a mate, and I can put a link to that work on the website too. So there's definitely work going on in this area. There are definitely people trying to close the loop. I could also mention a few other people who are doing things like having neuromorphic tactile sensors that are grabbing things with vision as well, where you're having multiple senses, sensor fusion, grasping happening, and looking at the success of that as a closed loop. So it's, I think it's all out there, but the question is when these kinds of benchmarks will be added to our new toolkit, which is the, the NeuroBench project. And I'm hoping that we'll have Charlotte Frankel, who is one of the main people working on the NeuroBench project for benchmarks in neuromorphic engineering. I've spoken to her already, and the people working on that project are aware that closed-loop systems are a deficit for now, but they won't always be a deficit. So hopefully we'll have her on to talk about that sometime in the future. Julia. Yeah, that is basically the point that Matej Hoffman had. I think that mm, before doing benchmarks, we also need to define clearly which kind of metrics we want to use for our systems, because it's not that easy to create benchmarks with, for example, normal deep learning methods and just compare the accuracy right, like straight as it is. It does not make any sense. And the second thing that I want to say also is that if I may, I'd like to say uh, a quote from Elisabetta's. In my opinion, this is the best sentence to explain neuromorphic computing. And she says, so you will never think that you want to solve a problem with a single computational unit that is perfect, but you want instead the multiple computational units to work together to make a robust computation. This to me is the best way of representing what we do. And we will never be as accurate as a deep learning method is. We will have different advantages. We play in a different game, I think. I, and I don't disagree again. I think this is exactly the kind of things that is true about our work. But I do think that it's a general statement in some sense, right? Is that it's always the case that the cost of the perfect extraordinarily large, right? And the cost of the just good enough is, you know, where the optimization point lies, right? So the question then becomes, what is that cost function? What is the optimization point that you're trying to get at? So what you're trying to do is important. And then you meet what is necessary to achieve the task at hand. And that's always a trade-off. And in computation, is the same way. You're not going to get the perfect billion-bit neuron. No, you're going to do it with four-bit neurons, but then you're going to have 20 of them talking together to get you the resolution that you need. So that trade-off between resolution and noise is an age-old one that goes back to Shannon and so on, right? So it's well-placed and well-put in the context of how does noise play a role with, with the accuracy of the models that you're trying to do. And I think that's why she was addressing that point that you raised, Julie. I think that's a good place to stop. 
Thanks to you, Sonny, for a great interview and to you, Ralph, for an interesting discussion. In our next episode, Sunny will be talking to Mitra Artman from Northwestern University about virtual and physical models of rats, both brains and body. Until then, you can find more information at brainsandmachines.net. That brings another episode of EE Times Current to a close. Thank you for listening, and thanks to our guest, Professor Elisabetta Kika from the University of Groningen. EE Times Current is available through the major podcast platforms, but if you reach us at our website, eetimes.com, you'll find a transcript of this episode. EE Times Current is produced by EE Times. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Stephanie Munoz. I'm Eric Singer. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.